your cake online. How's it hanging, Cake Nation? And welcome back to the Chemistry Cake Online Podcast, where chatting about chemistry has never been sweeter. Chemistry Cake is online, and today airs the fifth and last episode of our organic chemistry season of the year. It's been such a sweet season having Dr. Ali Boyington chatting about radical chemistry, Dr. Joel Walker chatting about process chemistry, Stan Adorn chatting about alkene functionalization, and of course, Dr. Aaron Hancock chatting about fused cyclobutanes. Folks, I can hardly contain my hype right now uh, as I introduce our final sweet guest of the season. She received her master's of chemistry degree at Oxford University, received another master's degree in chemistry at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and then worked for some time as an organic chemist and high-throughput chemist. Cake Nation, would you help me in giving a warm welcome to our sweet guest, my friend, Nessa Carson. Nessa, first and foremost, it is so wonderful to chat with you today. Are you well? I am doing well, thank you. I'm super excited to be here. That was an amazing introduction. You're so lovely. <laughs> ah, I'm so glad that you think so. Of course, of course. Um, I did want to ask where you are hailing from as we chat. Um, yeah, I am right on basically the very, very southeast corner of England, so practically France. Ah, wow. That's great. I was not <laughs> expecting that answer. Um, but I, I, I do I do admit that I, I'm not well versed in uh, geography of Europe, so I should probably brush up on that. But anyway, um, before we dive right in, I was reviewing your submission earlier and there was something that you mentioned that really piqued my interest. Oh, yeah? um, and that was that you said, yeah, that you said while benzene is not your favorite substance because it's toxic um cue britney spears uh you appreciate its visual aesthetic as it is an elegant symbol of organic chemistry and i was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing more about that yeah okay so i have a tattoo of a benzene ring and i call it a benzene ring i don't say i have a tattoo of benzene because i think having a tattoo of benzene is a bit weird but having a tattoo of a benzene ring is like perfectly normal and fine and clearly I have one um you know benzene is like very toxic it's not very nice to use I've used it a few times but it's it's not good for you oh we don't like to use it at all in industry pretty much um but I love the symbol you know it's really pretty geometrical it's not obvious to a non-nerd at first that it's a (laughs) that it's a (laughs) symbol so you know I get people in bars or whatever um asking me oh, what is that? And then I get to say, oh, it's because I'm a massive nerd. And they're like, oh, we thought you were cool for a minute. Oh, <laughs> Benzene's pretty cool, I ben think. Cool. cool to me. Benzene's cool. I think the only time I've ever used benzene was in the dry box, though. Um, okay. Yeah. That's, a, that's cool. I think that's really cool. Um, okay, so you have quite the CV of experience when it comes to chemistry. Um, You have a master's degree both from Oxford and from the University of Illinois. And I just can't help but ask, what kind of chemistry was your emphasis at Oxford? 
Um, yeah, so basically my entire history before I became a high-throughput chemist was synthetic organic chemistry. Um, you know, I so in, in the UK, then you can do either a three-year bachelor's, it's three years here, or it's usually three years here, and that's in England. Um, and in, or you can do a four-year degree, in which case you get like, it's kind of like a bachelor's, but with an extra year on the end. And that ends up being a master's degree. Um, and those are becoming quite common in the UK now. So, yeah, that's what I went for. I actually didn't have the option at the time. If you were at Oxford, you had to do a four-year chemistry degree. Um, it was great, though. And I knew by my third year that I definitely wanted to do organic chemistry forever. In fact, I think I pretty much knew that by my first year or possibly before I started university. Um, but yeah, I knew that that was definitely going to be my specialism pretty early on, it's fair to say. So, you know, I did a couple of, uh, summer internships. I think they're really important if you want to go into research, um, if you can get any summer experience or I know in the States you can do, um, experience throughout the year, which is also really, really valuable. But yeah, if you get those research opportunities, those are going to be really, really important for a future career in research. That's super cool. Wow. So so you said that um, you focused on synthetic chemistry. Was there any particular molecule that you were focusing on? No, so I wasn't doing anything like total synthesis or whatever. Um, I actually ended up for my master's doing kind of like a, a relatively esoteric project. <laughs> I think it's great to be able to do lots of different kinds of chemistry. Um, so I was trying to make organocatalysts and I was trying to Ooh. get them to do enantioselective reactions. Ooh. Ooh, say more words right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was trying to get really high selectivity and I was trying to do it with supramolecular systems so I was trying to basically just get molecules to aggregate together in groups in my cells kind of like how soap works uh to clean things and um I, I tried a lot of things during that year I'd probably do it slightly differently maybe if I did it now um, but I did try loads and loads of different things and nothing was an anti-selective whatsoever. <laughs> but I think they did form my cells, which is what I wanted them to do. So they did something. Yeah, I, you know, I'm quickly learning um, as I'm currently in a master's program that you try a lot of things. And it's always in the first two years, I feel like if you were in perhaps a PhD program, because um, the master's program, at least in uh, the United States, is anywhere between one to three years ish, right? Um, depending on how long you decide to take, but uh, and it also depends on whether it's coursework or or a thesis track. But um, in the first two years, that's where a lot of the nothing is working, and I'm making a lot of mistakes, and I'm learning a lot uh, happen. But um, very very few, very rarely is anything um, like groundbreaking ever discovered uh or at least that's that's how i how i feel maybe maybe i'm wrong but well you know i 
I think is really interesting. I agree um, with you. I think it's the first, you know, everyone says the first year of any advanced degree is kind of a waste of time. It's not really a waste of time. It's just that it feels like a waste of time because you don't seem to have got anywhere except, mm-hmm. you know, it's a year of learning and it's a year of finding out yeah. what things don't work. Yeah. And I think that's that's really important is like, um you know how that that sentiment of it's you know quote a waste of time but really it's not because you're learning a lot of valuable things like that is in my opinion like the learning curve of of higher education where it's like i'm learning a a likely a completely new field um and i'm learning the nuances of that field and i'm learning how to do things in lab and uh you know, there's a lot of learning that happens in those first, in that first year, first two years, which is, um, I think, really important. Um, but I did want to uh, go back just a little bit about an end-tumor selectivity. Um, just any kind of selectivity is really interesting to me. Um, and for whatever reason, uh, not not only was I thinking of an end-tumor selectivity, but it also brought the idea of chiral selectivity yep um that and it's just like how do people how do you do that like how how do folks separate those two like enantiomers or or um stereoisomers like it's just insane because they're exactly the same thing with with but you know with different rotations yeah i mean not only are they exactly the same thing but you know they're very they're going to be very very similar in energy i mean if you think about um you know a a difference in the um energies of like a transition state that's leading to two different enantiomers then if it's you know five kilojoules per mole apart then that's an 88 to 12 mixture um you know that there's very very small difference in energy between well i guess there's a there's there's a very small difference in energy between what's going on and you need like a pretty high difference in energy as transition states go uh to make something very enantioselective it's really really difficult basically and then when you get them out on the other end, they're exactly the same material, apart from the fact that, you know, they're mirror images of each other. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's really, really difficult. It's, it's incredible. I absolutely, yeah, I think I think it's amazing uh, when these processes work out to give really high enantioselectivity. I, I think it's very challenging as well. And in some ways, it's... It feels like it takes a long time when you're trying to develop an enantioselective reaction um, because maybe it feels slow because you are basically guessing out two things that are exactly the same or you're guessing out one thing and then you don't know what it is until you measure it, which on some of the methods I was using in university, for example, we had like a 30-minute method to be able to see whether what you had done was an enantioselective reaction or whether it was just rubbish, which feels like <laughs> a really, really long time when you're just sitting there watching it, like desperate for these two peaks to come out just to see how big they are. Oh my gosh. So I just want to run with this point for the listeners at home. To be able to get a solid out of a liquid, 
like having having something precipitate or crystals crash out of solution is probably every chemist's dream in terms of isolation because you can just you know filter off the the liquid and then you have your solid which is great and And if you have like something that can be extracted with liquid liquid extraction where like one either is a water soluble or one is organic soluble um you can you know do a liquid liquid extraction and then uh you know evaporate off the organic solvent hopefully it's in the organic layer and then you have a solid hopefully fingers crossed maybe a liquid but um but then then things get a little um tricky when like so for example i work with a nanomaterial and i can't really use filter paper i can't i can't use a regular filtrate solid liquid filtration setup because while it's solid it'll go right through the filter paper and especially considering that it's in an acid uh so it'll eat right through the filter paper um some folks have said like oh well, why don't you use teflon or glass cotton i think um yeah, and the best cool. way that we found i was like well perhaps but uh I, I don't think that's the best method we use centrifugation so that's something that that's helpful um and it also depends on how easily the pellet is disrupted but then to think about like okay we need to isolate or separate two molecules that are essentially either the same or very similar and like how do you do that um one of the other things that i was thinking about was um um, separating deuterated chloroform from protonated chloroform um right like because you know so for this i'm i'm talking about this in reference to nmr um you know like my students are learning about NMR and why there's a peak in the proton NMR at 726 um, ppm. uh, And it's due to the protonated chloroform impurity. But they're like, well, but where is that coming from? I thought it was deuterated. And then I asked them, well, what is the difference between deuterium and hydrogen? And they were like, uh deuterium has two neutrons and i was like yeah what what is the molecular weight difference between deuterium and hydrogen they're like one and i was like is one gonna make much of a difference between these two very large molecules and they're like i guess not <laughs> so so like it's like how on earth you know it's like 99.97 percent or 99.9 percent or or whatever pure yeah and they do a really good job, which is like, how? I don't know how you're doing that, but like, congratulations. That is so impressive. Yeah, I think they use like membranes of some sort, don't they? I might be wrong there. Hmm. Well, I'll have to investigate that. I've always wondered how they, how they did that, because it's like, that's wild. That's so insane. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Okay, so... So enantiomer selectivity at Oxford University, did you work on a similar thing during your study at the University of Illinois? Um, so I did continue in synthetic organic chemistry. Uh, I actually did three different projects uh, during my master's at Illinois. They were completely different from each other and completely different <laughs> from what I did at Oxford. Um, the only thing they had in common was metal catalysis. Transition catalysis is the only thing they had in common, which is a huge, huge area of chemistry. Um, Yes. It was great, really interesting. I learned loads and loads. I did a little more um, an anti-selective catalysis there in two of those projects as well. 
Nice. Am I allowed to ask which catalysts you used? Um, yeah, so I was having fun with some copper catalysts and with some palladium catalysts. Uh, the copper ones actually worked, uh, which is nice. <laughs> I guess the palladium ones worked to some extent. Um, I had a whole project there, which I was trying to get a reaction from okay to great. And mm. I couldn't do it, a postdoc couldn't do it. Like, we couldn't really get it above decent we couldn't get it good enough that we were excited to be running this reaction <laughs> we were just running uh, over, yes. and over and over again and now you know I ended up in high throughput chemistry and now I'm like oh this is this is what I do for a job but it's that but like really really fast and done with robots and done um in done done in a way where I can run all those reactions that I ran a few at a time or several at a time I can run loads and loads at a time now <laughs> so I appreciate that yeah okay so mentioning that's a really great segue into my next question which is you you do high throughput chemistry now which is a term that I hear often um like even my advisor was like yeah can we get this to high throughput and okay. I, I I scarcely understand this term would you mind explaining in more detail what high throughput chemistry actually is yeah sure i think there's a good reason for not understanding it which is that it's loads and loads of different things um like i tell people i do high throughput and a lot of people think oh that means that you're uh throwing molecules against protein targets or maybe you're taking one kind of compound and then um and then uh, testing different protein targets against that compound and seeing how well they bind for medicinal chemistry. That is high throughput. Um, it's doing lots of things in parallel. But actually what I do is high throughput reaction optimization. Ooh. So the most common kind of experiment for me, they're not all like this, but typically I will have a 96 well plate and most of the time I will... I'll want to make a reaction better or make it work in the first place if it doesn't work at all. And I'll take my starting material or starting materials and I will run 100 different sets of conditions, 96 sets of conditions, maybe different solvents, different bases, um, different amounts of additives or just anything like that, maybe different amounts of one of the starting materials. Um, and I can do all these things in parallel at the same time. And then I need to analyze 96 reactions at the end of that, which uh, wow. has its own troubles. It's really, really cool. I mean, you're not just blindly screening here. Um, screen design is incredibly rewarding, really, because you get to be able to throw all kinds of chemistry at a problem. And sometimes you end up with surprises. Um, sometimes you can try something because I'm trying a hundred reactions, right? Then I can easily throw in a couple that I think are going to be absolutely useless and just find out what they do. And sometimes the ones that we think are not going to work, sometimes actually they work all right or they show something surprising. It's really, really, yeah, I love it. Um, it really suits my mindset, I would say. That seems like a really efficient way to do chemistry. And I thought I was efficient um, because 
So I've mentioned before in, in previous episodes that I, I work with a polymer. And uh, one of the things that we're trying to probe is what would happen if we did this at different pH or if we did something different about it. But this reaction has to be done in quite a bit of solvent uh, until folks know that solvent is water. So it's not too scary. But um, I, you know, I, I was able to scavenge around with like, oh, yes, these are like hot plates that I can use. Um, and they're like old, but I, I was able to find them and they work. Um, so I've got like four stir plates going with like four different reactions going at the same time. And I was like, yeah, like I'm super efficient. And I was like, then folks were like, oh, yeah, like I ran like 96 different reactions at the same time with my 96 well plate. And I'm like, harump. <laughs> oh, but uh but it's super cool. I, I've always wondered, like, I've heard of these 96 well plates, and I, I always associate them with biology or biochemistry um, yeah. when, when folks are testing, like, protein um, or I think even DNA. And, and yep. I apologize for, yeah, it's, I, I was just going to say, I apologize to folks if I'm getting this all wrong. I, I've never used one before, but that's super cool to be able to do that with chemistry. Are you, so these 96 well plates, they're small, no? Um, so in a 96 well place, I would typically run a reaction with like 200 microliters of solvent, maybe. Uh, you oh can my go gosh. more than that. You, you can go down to a little bit below 100 microliters if you like, um, just about, and still be able to stir it, depending on how sticky and um, heterogeneous it is. Um, but yeah, typically about 200 microliters. I think that's so wild because uh, on a previous episode, Dr. Joel Walker was talking about mm. process chemistry and he was talking about how like you have his hu these huge vats of, of chemistry happening. And now we're talking about a 200 microliter scale. And my mind is like, I wonder if this is how the atom feels when he goes from like normal size to the size of an atom. But anyway. Yeah, oh, I, actually, what's kind of incredible about that is that you can use uh, high throughput reaction optimization. You know, I, I've used it um, for process chemistry before, and I've used it in conjunction with process chemists, and uh, even one time in conjunction with manufacturing chemists. So they're doing things on thousands of liters scale. Um, that was that's kind of amazing, right? Because I'm running things on about 200 microliters, 250 microliters, maybe. Um, and we're taking the conclusions of that experiment into something huge. Of course, those reactions do not work at all the same way. Um, you, okay. need, you basically need engineers to deal with the problems there. But the actual chemistry itself, you can sometimes um, figure out some conclusions that are going to be useful for the much larger scale process and just be able to work it out without using that much material um and be able to do it really really quickly as well with the robots robots oh my robots are my friends well you don't want me to be dosing 100 times like 2.5 migs of my starting materials so the robots are doing this yeah my robot friends do it for me oh that's amazing wow so this is an, an automated system um I would say there are different islands of automation. Um, okay. So I, I think it's, well, there, there are some merits to this, like 
um, it's good to be able to have some fail safes if there's, you know, robots can break sometimes. Um, so I like to have one robot that kind of does all the setting up of the reaction. Maybe I'll move it then to another robot that will add liquids. Yeah, um, so they're all kind of working with each other, but with a human, i.e. me, in between <laughs> who can move the plate from robot to robot and then let it stir for a bit um, and then put it on the LCMS, which is how I normally analyze things at the end, which, of course, an LCMS, you know, contains a robot in itself, even though we don't normally think of it that way. LCMS is liquid chromatography mass spectrometry. Yeah, that's the one. How does that work? Um, so I, the reason I use it is because it's so fast. Um, so you're going to see peaks. It's kind of like running a column. Um, mm -hmm. So you're going to see peaks in a typically a UV trace at the end, which, you know, of course, like a column, they're going to be in the same place for the same compounds each time. So you can mm -hmm. sort of analyze an entire 96 well plate at once. Um, but, you know, basically it's, it's like, a, like a hand column. So you'll have Ooh. a column of silica, a modified silica of some sort, um, and you have a pretty high-pressure system that will push your, push your compounds a tiny little amount of your compounds in this case, because I'm only using it for analysis, not for separating anything. Um, so, you know, a couple of microliters... Uh, which contain micrograms of my compounds and those will separate out on the column and then it will give you both a UV trace and push your compounds through a mass spec. So not only can you see where those compounds are coming off the column, but you can see at the same time uh, what the masses are. It's incredibly useful, incredibly fast. It's the number one way to characterize things in my kind of um, pharmaceutical chemistry. Wow, way to be efficient. That's super exciting. Wow. Uh, chemistry <laughs> is so cool. Ah, oh, that's super cool. Okay, well, Nessa, um, this chat has been so lovely, but it does appear that we are nearing the end of our chat. But before we do, I have to ask you one final and incredibly important question. Go ahead. Are you ready? Okay. What is your favorite cake flavor and why? Oh, I think I answered this already, but I don't remember what I say because I'm sure it, I'm sure it changes all the time. Um, I love coffee and walnut cake or just coffee cake. Okay. So when you say coffee cake, are you referring to the pastry that is often eaten with coffee or are you talking about cake that is flavored with coffee? 100% cake that is flavored with coffee. That's the best cake. Okay, so not not the pastry that is called coffee cake, but tastes that, nothing I, like coffee. That is definitely not a thing in England. I need to try this now. Okay, so, okay, I'm glad that we brought this up. I did oh. not know that it wasn't a thing in, in England. Um, I do believe it's a thing in America because that I, that's what I'm um, familiar with. But it's a small pastry... And this is um, this likely will be one of the uh, topics of discussion uh, when we have our roundtable of what is a cake and what isn't. But um, coffee cake, at least in the United States, is a pastry that has 
like a it has brown sugar and cinnamon and doesn't taste anything like coffee but you're supposed to dip it in your coffee and it's best if dipped in the coffee black and the there's like a brown sugar cinnamon crumble on top of the pastry and that falls into the coffee and sweetens your coffee okay but I don't know if I would classify this pastry as a cake and so now I want to um commission a bunch of scientists for a round table which I the 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 plans of which are under works folks so so get get excited about it but um to present these different pastries that are either named cake or are structurally a cake but not named a cake to see how they would classify these pastries for example cheesecake you don't have to answer that but i'm just bringing that up as whether cheesecake is a cake or a pie or if boston cream pie is a cake or a pie so this is important we're really gonna (laughs) we're really gonna ripple the waters here (laughs) yeah this needs to be done yeah um so you are more than welcome to join that round table if you would like we would love to have you on the show again 100 percent. yes sweet friend um thank you so much for joining me to chat today it has been such a wonderful conversation and i certainly hope that you enjoyed it as much as i did it has Um, been fabulous and i've had a great time so excited uh um to the listeners at home thank you for joining in on our chat we hope you were able to learn something new um i now think i understand what high throughput chemistry means um and it is really always sweet to have you on uh, with us. Um, if you would like to follow the many adventures of Nessa Carson, you can follow her on Twitter at SuperScienceGRL, and you can visit her website at SuperScienceGRL.co.uk. Uh, both of those will be d- linked in the description. And of course, if you would like to partake in the hype and hop aboard that train, you are more than welcome to follow me on Twitter at ChemistryCake. And if you would like to take a sneak peek at my hashtag stay at home shenanigans as I dive right into writing my master's thesis, you are welcome to follow me on Instagram at chemistrycakeonline. Well, folks, that is all we have for you today. This is your friendly reminder to stay hydrated, to keep the hype alive, and to edify our village. Stay well, folks. Until next time, this is Chemistry Cake signing off. Thank mm-hmm. you.